0: Greetings, everyone, and happy Halloween. We hope you are comfortable and ready for this evening's festivities. Let's set the mood, shall we? Imagine that the night air is cool and crisp, and you are walking alone down a dark road that stretches on for miles. On one side of you is woods, the other, a cornfield. Your car has broken down and there is no service where you are. The moon above you is full and bright, giving the night an eerie silvery brightness that should be helpful, but isn't. The day was warm, but the night got suddenly cold, and so a thin fog clings to the warm ground. The crickets have been singing in concert with your quickened breath, but now they have stopped. It is quiet, the kind of quiet that feels thick and woolly, as though something has happened to your ears, so you rub them to check. Nothing. Keep walking, you think. Just keep walking. Don't stop. The hair on the back of your neck has begun to stand on end, and your breath becomes visible in little clouds in front of your face. Why is it so damn Quiet. The sound of a cracking twig echoes through the woods. Something races through the cornfield. You are not alone. Where is it? You feel something looking at you, but you can't see it. You scan the cornfield, nothing. Hello, you say, as confidently as you can muster. Hello, a tiny voice answers back. You scan the woods, and then you see it. A small figure standing among the trees. It appears out of focus, like there is suddenly Vaseline on the lens of your life. Who are you, you ask? Nobody, it says. Fear slides down your stomach. It feels like you've swallowed ice cubes. What do you want, you manage to say, beginning to tremble. The figure giggles and then begins to advance. Isn't it obvious? The figure answers, almost giddy now. I want you. And then, it all goes black. I'm Holly.
1: I'm Leslie.
0: And we would be dead. We would be dead. Halloween. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. I hate little girls. I know. I, hate them. I figured. I read uh. like um a lot of poetry about Halloween when I was trying to find like how to do the opening this week because you know I like reference literature a lot of times. And I couldn't find anything So I I was like I'll just write something And I feel like that applies To both our stories Because it could be a little girl But it could be an
1: alien Oh yeah Yeah Projecting (laughs) a little girl Thinking like This will be safe to them And I'd be like Nope Bam I'd knock that thing out
0: (laughs) I just say it's a small figure I don't say it's a little girl Your brain went there Because that's what scares you Well yeah Well also
1: I guess Because of your voice (laughs) It went to a little girl's voice (laughs) Hello Hello (laughs) Ooh Get out of my head (laughs) Oh
0: good times So before we uh, even start with business We should probably (laughs) give you guys a little update Um, We were supposed to have campfire stories tonight And unfortunately we had to cancel them Because we did record this whole episode last night But um, we had like a technical glitch That ended up erasing all of Leslie's audio Yes Whoops which is just the worst. It's so, it's so sad. The aliens did not
1: want me talking about uh, that story is probably what happened. Don't even...
0: Oh, God, you're right. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I, I hate it. Ask Leslie. <laughs> I couldn't, she was and- crouching down
1: <laughs> under the screen during my story. I've never seen Holly do that. I've done that, <laughs> but I've never seen Holly do that.
0: Oh, God, I hate it so much. Oh, scares me. So just to be perfectly transparent with you guys, we have heard each other's story at this point. It's kind of supposed to be a surprise, but we have told them one time before. In no way does that mean they are less scary for either one of us. (laughs) (laughs) Because neither one of us want to hear them again. That is 100% true. (laughs) However, we are doing it for you and uh, we will be back. A week from today with our campfire stories on urban legends. We would not deprive you or ourselves of that fun.
1: Well, so when this one comes out, we'll be, uh, it'll be that Friday. Oh,
0: okay. So this this Friday. This Friday. (laughs) (laughs) I can't think in the future. I'm the worst. (laughs) So that's our little disclaimer for tonight. Just so you guys, just to be honest with you. uh, So Hi, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hi. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Yes. Hello, fiends, and welcome to Halloween. Ooh. 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 Ooh, spooky time! We are super excited. If you couldn't tell, we don't seem excited at all <laughs> <laughs> to bring this idea uh, to fruition for you guys. It was. It came from the group, and we're very excited to do it tonight. Leslie and I will attempt to scare each other for your enjoyment. Hooray! This episode is going to work just like our campfire stories. Leslie and I will each tell a story and these stories are designed to scare one another. So they're about our worst fears. Um, And I I think that Leslie, I know now that Leslie is going to win this one, you guys.
1: <laughs> I can't. I'm scared. I don't know. The second half of your story is going
0: to get me. So, Ugh. you mean the little tiny tail on the end of it?
1: <laughs> no, no. The second, well, that one for sure. Okay. There's one piece that I cannot get out of my head, but there's a um, whole second half of your story when it gets, starts to get deep.
0: Oh, it does. That's deep true. And dark. Yeah. So, Leslie is afraid of creepy little girls and snakes. Ugh, I hate you saying it. I know. You hate them both. So many S's. <laughs> True. Um, so I will tonight I'll be talking about the Sally house with a bonus afterwards about snakes. ew Stop saying it like that.
1: <laughs> snakes. Oh And Sally, you had to pick a Sally. Oh <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Ooh, sorry. Sorry. Aliens? Aliens, Sally, they're real. The government agrees they are real.:
0: Clearly Leslie's talking about aliens tonight, you guys. That's my story aliens um i have like a deep-seated fear of alien abductions i hate them so much i can read (laughs) i can read like the worst grossest murderer stories in the world and i bring most of them to leslie and not even flinch i'm fine but then like one alien abduction fucking forget it i'm out of (laughs) here i can't Everybody has something. That is true. Just saying. All right. So I'm already dead at this point. Uh, We don't have much business to attend to this evening before heading right into this audio hayride that we have designed for you. Um, Please, 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 please pop by our Apple podcast page and leave us a five-star review. We love bringing you free creepy content every single week but the only way for us to move forward is for you to let the podcast overlords know that we are doing a good job. (sighs) They're mad at us right now, obviously. So we could really, (laughs) we could really use your help.
1: Yes, please. And I think you can only give a five-star
0: review. So it makes it really easy. Every other review doesn't work. So just just leave us a five-star review. You can even just rate us. Just click the stars and move on if you don't want to say lots of things. We like reviews better, but like, we'll take them all. They're all good. We appreciate you. Uh, Also, as I have mentioned before, we are on Patreon. So if you're loving what you're hearing, please feel free to pop by our Patreon site and leave us a little monthly donation. Anything is fabulous. Uh, As low as $3 a month gets you some super cool perks and extras that Leslie and I are developing as we speak. Uh, The link is in all of our social media and it will be in the show notes of tonight's episode. Uh, And that, I believe, is... All the business we have.
1: Very cool. All right.
0: All right. Do you want to go first tonight? Yeah, because I can't after I hear your story, I can't function properly. Okay. <laughs> so well, yeah,
1: this will give you a chance to drink some and get get good and I think good that's, and toasty.
0: <laughs> I think that I have to drink during your whole story, so it's probably better that before I do that I read mine. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh so god. Okay. Ooh. Shaking off the knowledge of what you're going to say later. Tonight, well, for us, it's nighttime. Maybe it's daytime for you. I don't know what you do.
1: We don't know your life. We don't.
0: But you know what? Live it. If you're listening to us, no matter what you're doing is good. Uh, So I will be talking about the Sally House. The Sally House is a small, white, two-story home located near the bank of the Missouri River at 508 North 2nd Street in Atchison, Kansas. It was built in the late 1800s. Now, the dates are a little hazy on when it was built. People say it's from, there's a window, 1868 to 1872. And every single source says that, basically. So there's no, that's it. We got a window. I think that's a good window. <laughs> yeah, the Finney's acquired the land in 1868. And sometime before 1972, the house went up. Cool. It, it, so it was built, as I just mentioned, for the Finney family. Um, and they owned the house for nearly a century. Like one Finney or the next owned it. It just passed down from generation to generation. Um, And the last member of their family line to own the house was Dr. Charles Finney. Well, this is a fun little extra. Further research into Dr. C.C. Finney, as he bills himself in newspaper articles, was a pretty interesting man. Dr. Finney began his professional life as a competitive figure skater. Fancy. He is a delight. Uh, he was a very eccentric and fun guy, but he caused quite a sensation Oh. when he, yes, ma'am, when he performed in drag, <gasps> dressed as a lady. I love it. So he dressed in drag on the ice, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's so good. He came out, performed his routine, yeah. dressed as a lady, thought he was going to kill. Thought it was like a great idea. <laughs>
1: And it sounds great. He's probably just trying to manifest the the flowiness that women can do on the ice.
0: He went with a feeling and he was like excited to go for it. And then his audience was like, oh, no. Ugh, just he was such stuffy people at the time, apparently. It's not the right time. They just didn't get it. They didn't get him. So after his figure skating disgrace, Charles decides that it's time that he just go to medical school. Because that's the logical jump to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you can't figure skate, you'd be a doctor, right? Yeah. Yep. This makes perfect sense. So he goes to medical school in St. Louis. When he returns to Atchison in 1912 as a doctor, his medical practice absolutely flourishes. He's doing awesome. He even was elected mayor of Atchison, an office which he held for two years. Now, while I have done quite a bit of research um, on this case, the timeline can be very muddy in areas. And the following story does not really have a date attached to it, but judging by my figure skating findings (laughs) and when he was mayor of Atchison, I can assume that this happened around 1920. Perfect. Dr. Finney was living in the house on North 2nd Street and practicing out of it as well. His practice was on the first floor where he had a waiting room and an exam room. The back of that was like, behind that was the kitchen for the family. And then there was a staircase that led up to the family's living room and bedrooms. Dr. Finney practiced every day except for Sunday, I believe, because, you know, Midwest Christians, it happens. They need Sunday off. One Sunday, Dr. Finney was in his office filing some paperwork or just, I mean, it's in the front of his house, just conducting business. When a young woman ran into his front door, holding her young daughter in her arms, the little girl was pale and clutching her abdomen, frantically howling in pain. The neighbor begs Dr. Finney to please, please help her child. And of course he obliged, ushering them both into his exam room. After a brief exam, Dr. Finney determines that the young girl called Sally had appendicitis and it had reached a critical point. Now, if you have appendicitis... Uh, and you don't treat it, your appendix will explode. Yes, just for anybody out there and our listenership that doesn't know that. So it does get to a point where like you have to operate on it because if it explodes and that infection goes into your system, you can die. That's one of those
1: fears that I had as a child because you know how Same. like mostly kids get appendicitis. So Will had appendicitis. <laughs> yeah, who had appendicitis? Will did. My husband. Oh, will. Oh, yeah, he had yeah. to have his
0: appendix out, and my boyfriend, when I was like seventeen, got appendicitis, and I was with—oh wow—with him in the hospital when he was like sitting there waiting to get his appendix out. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's scary because it feels incredibly urgent. Mm-hmm. I mean, nowadays they catch it most of the time. I think a lot earlier than they did in the past. But in the past, they're like, "You have a stomach ache, you're fine," and then dead. So, mm-hmm. Doctor Finney says, "Like we have to, we have to operate on her right now." So he brings them into the exam room, puts Sally on the table and is going to perform this appendectomy himself. He gives Sally some sedation, which from what I can read at the time would have been ether that they would inhale through like a mask over their nose and mouth. Again, this is just me connecting dots. So he gives her a little anesthesia and feels that enough has set in, but he he just can't wait any longer and he has to begin to operate. Much to everyone's abject horror, as soon as his scalpel met Sally's flesh, she began to cry out and scream, kick, and try to get away. Dr. Finney had no nurse to help him, so there was no continued anesthesia as ether had to be continually applied to the mask to keep you in the state that, you know, would be okay to perform surgery. And so Sally's dazed and terrified mother has to step in and do as best as she can to hold the girl down as Dr. Finney tries to extract her appendix while she is completely conscious. As you can well imagine, this did not go well. There is no precision to be had. The scalpel is slipping everywhere and Dr. Finney is fighting against the girl's urgent screams and kicks, but it wouldn't work. Eventually, shock and exsanguination took Sally's young life that day. That means she bled out, but my favorite word is exsanguination, so... Word of the day. Exsanguination. Ah. (laughs) When you die of blood loss, you exsanguinate. Go use it. It feels good to say. I know you're all saying it right now. It's all right. It's fun. Go ahead. Do it. (laughs) I'm glad you said it too. So this event is a total ethical nightmare, obviously, but Dr. Finney has a sterling reputation in the town and this would allow him to continue practicing medicine as everyone would choose to believe his extremely watered down version of the day's events. I'm sure he was like, I'm a hero. I tried to save her, but she died. No, you botched that shit. But you know, Certainly life moves on for most people. But many people believe that Sally never left that house. Her agitated spirit trapped in the place where her life came to a nightmarish end. Others believe an event that traumatic can leave a doorway open for evil to slip in. And that is exactly what happened in the Finney home that day.
1: Ugh, I don't like that.
0: Mm-mm. Records also show that four members of the Finney clan would meet their maker in that house, including Dr. Charles himself. After Dr. Finney's, after Dr. Finney's sorry death, the home would become a rental property still owned by the Finney family until the early 1970s, where they passed it off to a real estate company. They would have a steady stream of long-term renters until 1991, when Tony and Deborah Pickman purchased the house. The Pickmans moved in on January 1st, 1992. New year, new house. They're probably really stoked about that. With their three cats and one dog. Just like me, we have three cats and one dog, but not an evil ghost. So That you know of yet. It might just not have manifested. It'll come. We've lived here for like 10 years. (laughs) I don't think it's coming. I hope. Oh God, knock on wood. There. Ooh, margarita teeth. (laughs) Or was I just waiting for everyone else to knock too? Maybe this is an interactive experience. Yes, everyone knock. Mm-hmm. Knock and say exsanguinate. We're all having fun. It's fine. So they, the Pickmans move in to this house. Um, on, oh, and at the time, Deborah was pregnant with their first child, a son they would call Taylor. By Valentine's Day, Tony and Deborah had settled into their new home and fallen into a habit of retiring to their sofa to watch television and wind down after dinner, which is like everybody's routine, but okay. Before they would go upstairs and go to bed. That night, however, they noticed something strange happening. The light in their living room would slowly dim. It would dim for five solid minutes until it was nearly out and then spring back to full power, only to wait a little while and repeat the whole process again. The Pickmans thought that this was strange, but they just kept on with their evening. This went on for a few days. Tony replaced the light bulb, checked the wiring, checked the fuses and the circuit breaker, and he couldn't find anything wrong. So finally, they call in an electrician who could also find nothing wrong with the light. One night, when the light was doing its creepy thing, Deborah commented, maybe it's a ghost. Ah, No. Oh, no. At that point, the light sprang back to life at full power and never dimmed again. But I was going to say, so it worked. Oh, kind of. Work to do something, just not what they wanted. Yeah. This was only the beginning of their troubles because now they had acknowledged it. Never call out a ghost, Deborah. Don't do it, Deb. Yeah, not while laughing at it anyway. That's bad juju. I'm hoping the story takes a turn from the other night. Yeah, it's a different (laughs) story tonight. I'm hoping. I'm hoping it changed. Mm -mm. (laughs) A couple nights after their night light show had stopped, Tony hears their dog angrily barking. Not just like a little bark, like it sees something like it's it's going after something. And he runs up the stairs to see what has provoked it. There he finds the dog standing at the threshold of the nursery, barking, growling, and snapping furiously at the empty room, but refusing to actually enter the doorway. That's never a good sign. No. The dog was acting as though it were in imminent danger. Tony shushed the dog and moved it aside and figured that one of the cats had just spooked it Put it out of his mind and he moved on with his night. But this would continue to happen again and again for two weeks before coming abruptly to an end. At that point, I would have left. When the dogs are
1: just barking at nothing.
0: Yeah, that would... I wouldn't be able to handle that. I'd
1: be like, I'm taking my unborn child and I'm getting out of here, Tony. I gotta go. (laughs) Gotta go.
0: I'm going to my mother's. (laughs) Listen, Tony probably would have been fine with that. Yeah. (laughs) But this is when the cold spots started to appear. Also never good. Nope. Tony and Deborah begin to walk through small pockets of freezing air as they walk through their home. But it's not just them. Guests in their home feel this too. It's strange, but they just decide to blame it on their house being old and drafty. Must be like breeze rustling through the drafty windows or something. I don't know. So they brush it all off and prepare for... For the birth of their child, until one night in mid-May, Deborah is roused from a sound sleep by the loud, piercing sound of screams and thumping in their hallway. It sounded as though some were be- someone was being terribly hurt and screaming in pain. Deborah woke Tony, completely panicked. They both sat up and realized that the cats were in the room. Their hackles were up; they were hissing and snor- and like screeching and sh- running around. And I thought this was so funny. It was just the cats.
1: Oh, man.
0: (laughs) No one was screaming. It was just a cat sounding like a person screaming.
1: When you said this part last night, it reminded me of uh, what we do in the shadows when the vampires hiss at each other. (laughs) I just imagined them just like going at it.
0: Oh, that's (laughs) my favorite show. I know. They got renewed for season three. Yay! No, I don't like anything better than when they just yell, "Bat" and then they're a bat. Yeah. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> I can talk about that all night, yeah, <laughs> but i will I will move on begrudgingly. So they brush off this whole terrifying event. as just, "Oh, this is the cats. We thought it sounded like a scream. It was probably just them meowing. It's fine. Uh, and weird facts, weird cat fact. Cats actually do learn to mimic certain human sounds to cause... they do. Stop it. To get attention. Yeah, they will mimic the sound of your baby crying, the same like tone of their voice. And I can tell you this because my cats do it. Certain like meows they have in the middle of the night sound nearly identical to one of our kids going, mommy. Ew. Yeah, it's awful, but it is 100% true. So... There's, you didn't say that the other night. Ugh. No, you got me. <laughs> so keep that in your mind. Your cats have the capacity to scare the ever loving shit out of you, and they do it on purpose to wake you up. Bastards. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Next time you're in my house, think about that. It sounds just like mommy, like when the cats. Ew, stop. I babysit. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe they don't do it to you. Maybe they just do it to me. No,
1: they do do it to me. And now I'm going <laughs> to notice it more. <laughs> like, why are they making such weird childlike sounds?
0: <laughs> to make you pay attention to them. That's why. Flower. So there's like just a little drop of science behind that. I just wanted to throw that in there. Um. So that happens. They move on yet again. They have the capacity to ignore so much. On June 26th, the 6th, <laughs> can't talk. 1992, Taylor was born and the Pickmans were overjoyed. The little family of three settles into life in their new home all together. But shortly after they return from the hospital, Deborah notices another strange thing begin to occur. Her cordless phone, for those of you who are super duper young, at one point in time, phones were connected to your house. That's right. Spooky. They, (laughs) They didn't leave your home. They just lived there. Some of them had cords where the handset was attached to the base, but some of them didn't. And when you got too far away from your house, they didn't work anymore. And by too far away, I mean your front yard. I just don't understand, Holly. I know, you're so young. Just for anybody who doesn't understand that technological marvel. But she would enter the nursery while talking on the cordless phone and the handset would blink out and she wouldn't be able to hear. Then when she left the nursery, the phone would work again. Now she just assumed that this is some sort of like weird glitch happening because cordless phones were glitchy again this is just like a lot of coincidences but whatever people only believe what they want to believe and she moves on with her life shortly after that tony notices one afternoon when he is vacuuming the baby's nursery that the mobile over the crib starts to turn and make music out of nowhere i know that's that music box sound coming out of nowhere at first he brushes this off as old mobiles are operated by, a like, winding them with a key. And the motion could be, like, suddenly brought to action by the, like, the thumping or moving of the vacuum. It could just turn it over a little bit. So he's like, oh, it must have just been that. But it quickly becomes obvious that that was not the case as the mobile moves at full speed and then abruptly cuts off. Tony decides that he has cleaned the room thoroughly enough and has to get the fuck <laughs> out of there. Yep. I love Tony in this story. Tony's our hero here. He's like, this is clean. It's good. I gotta go. By now, I'm sure you can sense the pattern. When one strange set of occurrences stops, another one shortly afterward will begin. One afternoon, Tony enters the nursery to fetch a diaper while Deborah is downstairs entertaining guests. When he enters the room, he finds (sighs) a perfect circle of Taylor's stuffed toys arranged on the nursery floor. Each animal, perfectly spaced, And facing outward at the perfect angle so that all their eyes are facing perfectly outward. He doesn't, Tony doesn't like this at all. No, thank you. So he runs downstairs and tells Deborah what has happened. And she says, Well, clearly she didn't do that. And Taylor couldn't possibly have done that as he is an infant and can't even lift his own head. Deborah runs up the stairs to check, and it's all there. And she can't believe it. Rattled by this, they're kind of on edge for a couple of days. They have guests over again a few days later. I don't know; these guests are like setting shit off or something. It's it's like a, Tony's brother and his wife or something that come over a lot. And again, they they bring the baby into the room to change him, and they notice that a little teddy bear that had been sitting on the rocking chair was on the floor. Pick it up. They leave the room, come back to get something. The doll is on the floor again. So this time they're like, okay, we're gonna put it back. Leave the room only briefly, and then come back to see if it fell on the floor. Tony sets the teddy back up. Deborah goes downstairs. She comes back upstairs on the floor again. They do this over and over and their guests see it happen too. And every time the teddy bear is on the floor, totally rattled by these experiments, the Pickmans are starting to find it harder to go about their daily life. Yeah, you think? Then one afternoon, Deborah has a strange conversation with her next door neighbor. She is out in the yard one bright afternoon chatting when the neighbor asks her how on earth baby Taylor manages to get any sleep at night with the light in his nursery blazing on at all hours. Deborah goes pale. She turns the light off every night when she leaves his room and has never encountered it on when she has attended to him in the middle of the night or when she goes to get him in the morning. The neighbor insists, though, she has seen this light on all night. Her husband has seen it. They have commented on it. It happens ever since Taylor came home with them. They do not like any of these events. And so Deborah starts to get a little edgy. She decides to ask around about any people that have lived in the house before she did. Thinking maybe she could ask them about their experiences. And eventually she finds one. There is a family that lives nearby that m- recently moved, like recent to when they moved in, had moved out of the house. Deborah goes over to the home and they're gracious enough to speak to her. The woman goes on to, Deborah tells her her story, tells her everything that's happening in the house. And the woman becomes silent and Deborah asks her what's the matter. And she, what's the matter? And she explains that the entire time they stayed in the house, she had perpetually scolded her son for constantly leaving his toys all over the house. Her son would swear it wasn't him, but she just assumed that he was nervously fibbing so he wouldn't get into trouble. Once they moved, her son was neat as a pin. And there was one other thing. The woman's daughter had been obsessed with an imaginary friend while they lived in that house. A friend she liked to blame any trouble that occurred on. It was a little girl named Sally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After this event, Deborah gets the name of a reputable psychic. <laughs> Good job, Deb. Who lives in California and is named Barbara. And I love Barbara the psychic. That is great.
1: Too. <laughs> Barb. Barb <laughs> and Deb. Barb back and Deb. at it again.
0: <laughs> I know. I, I hope they go on to fight crime. That would be great. Deborah calls Barbara the psychic and Barbara like breathes in the situation and takes stock of it all over the phone, by the way. And she says she senses a presence. With the family. She says it is that of a little girl. She loves their home and she loves baby Taylor. She plays with baby Taylor and watches over him. She likes to play with his toys and sometimes she causes mischief, but only because she loves them, wants to stay with them and likes the attention. She is lost in her ghostly world and quite alone. If Deborah creates barriers and rules and speaks them aloud to the spirit, then they can live in harmony. And this satisfies Deborah it more than satisfies her. She thinks it's interesting and kind of fun. She feels okay that it's a little girl and even sympathetic. She's a mother. Her her heart goes out to this poor lost little child. She feels like she needs to help her. Uh, but Tony does not feel the same way. Our guy Tony. <laughs> he wanted out, but Deborah convinces him to see things her way for a little while, and for a little while it does work. Deborah speaks her rules and restrictions aloud and the ghost seems to follow them. When she doesn't, Deborah reminds her and things go back to good. That is until our little friend begins to turn on Tony. One summer evening, Tony, Deborah, and Taylor are going to visit Tony's family for dinner. The trio leaves out the front door and Deborah heads to the passenger seat while Tony carries Taylor out to clip him into the, his car seat in the rear driver's side. No sooner has Tony sat Taylor in his seat than he feels a stinging pain in his back and cries out. Deborah runs over to where he is standing and she, while she does so, she passes through a spot that felt both freezing cold and electric all at once. When she reaches Tony, completely stunned, he lifts his shirt and they discover he has three long, deep scratches on his back, oozing blood. Sally did not want Taylor to leave the house. Deborah, knowing things at this point have gone too far, immediately lays out new ground rules complete with no hurting anyone and then <laughs> calls up Barb. Gotta call in Barbara the Psychic. This time, Barbara is so taken with the Pickman situation that she tells Deborah she wants to come to her home and speak with Sally herself. So she flies all the way from her home in California to Atchison, Kansas. Barbara enters the Pickman home and immediately senses the presence. She speaks to Sally and then tells Deborah and Tony that she is going to channel Sally. Barbara falls into a trance-like state before beginning to speak like a little girl and then slipping back into her normal voice to ask questions. Through this channeling session, they discover that Sally is seven. She claims that she loves baby Taylor and the mommy, which is Deborah, but she does not like the daddy, which is Tony, as he is a man and Sally does not trust him. He makes her nervous. Many speculate that this is because a man, Dr. Finney, was responsible for her agonizing death. So Sally doesn't really like men all that much. Sally also says that she does not like all the new rules Rules in her house. There are too many to keep track of and they are hard to follow. This makes her angry. Barbara and Deborah speak to Sally, explaining that the rules must be followed if she wishes to stay in the house. And Sally seems to accept this. But Tony is not having it. He reiterates that he is totally uncomfortable with this arrangement. He feels unsafe with Sally in their home, and no wonder, but he is outnumbered. And Deborah insists that she loves Sally now and she views her as a part of their family. She is one of their children now. Okay. Girl, no, she isn't. Gotta <laughs> <Kinda> back <laughs> up a little bit. That's too much. Then in September, the fires begin. Little fires begin to be set strategically throughout the house. At first, it's just burning candles that like come alight out of nowhere and little pieces of paper trash deborah tells sally no no fires great she even goes so far as to buy sally her own oil lamp so that she can set a fire whenever she wants that's a bad call
1: weird i don't i forgot about that part
0: i added some more in today
1: oh i was like wait a second (laughs)
0: it's in it's in her book i didn't add all the details because i have like a limited amount of time to tell the story today but like that that's part of it. Um,
1: Sorry, Deb. I know you're still around.
0: But. I know. Yeah, Deborah might be listening, and we are t- on board with your story, Deborah. But that is so scary, and we'll there's there's we'll get to the reasons yes. why she might have done this <laughs> later. But um, yeah, so that happens. But it doesn't satisfy Sally. She begins to light toys on fire. They find stuffies and little teddy bears in different parts of the house, just sitting there on fire. Photos of the Pickmans, uh, they get developed of their family in the house, begin to show a small orb hovering on the edges of it. And they figured that this must be Sally. Then it happens. On Halloween, in the early morning hours, Tony sees Sally for the first time. Tony works uh, the overnight shift in a local grain mill. And he gets home from work at about five o'clock in the morning. So early enough in the morning that it's still dark out. That morning, he gets home, walks in the front door, and goes directly to the refrigerator to get a glass of orange juice. He opens the fridge, pours his orange juice, and hears a sound. He turns around, and there standing beside his table is a small girl she is dressed all in white what appears to be her sunday best her hair is piled on top of her head with a large bow on the side of it and he stands there for a moment looking at her she is not of his time He can't really place it and then it dawns on him who that must be and he drops his glass it shatters on the floor he looks down to see what he has done and by the time he looks up sally is gone Ooh, that's when I would have moved out of the house. Yeah. Tony tells Deborah this and she's delighted. She loves Sally. She said Sally must trust you now as she let you see her. She is our sweet little girl. All going to be fine. Tony's like, "No, it is most definitely not." I feel like Deb was like, "Is she cute? What she look like? Tell me all about it." <laughs> oh my god, I love her. How small was she? Did she have a big bow? <laughs> <laughs> um, then Time, a little more time passes and Tony is walking through the halls of his home when he sees something brush past him. He turns to see a woman, like a grown-ass woman with blonde hair walk by him and then evaporate into thin air. He calls his wife. He says, well, is there some, do, you have, do you have somebody in the house? Like, what is happening? I just saw somebody here in the hallway. And she's like, oh, it must be Sally. He's like, no, 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 no. This is a woman. Shortly after this, it's it's Christmas time at this point, and the Pikmin's get their like pictures that they take in front of the Christmas tree with the baby. Developed, friends. At one point, you had to take your photos to a kiosk in the mall and someone would develop them with chemicals and hand you pieces of paper with them on it. Not like today. <laughs> this time they noticed the photos have two orbs hovering in them
1: oh so this wasn't in their house when they took the pictures
0: no it was in their house like they oh, were in okay. their home in front of their christmas tree it's like christmas pictures oh, okay or like maybe they were in front of like stockings coming down the stairs adorable positioned yeah they were just taking their cute christmas pictures in their house and they noticed two orbs in them this time okay we go on to think probably that was sally and whoever this woman was that tony saw Their contact then begins to intensify. One afternoon, Deborah hears, uh, like a struggle coming from their bedroom. So she runs up the stairs and opens the bedroom door to find Tony laying on the bed with his arms and legs stretched outward and his head cocked at attention. He looks, his eyes, yeah, I know, his eyes look terrified. When she opens the door, like after a second when they like make eye contact, he relaxes and falls to the bed. He's not like levitating. He's just tense. Um, Deborah says, what happened? And Tony said he entered the room and he felt pulled by an unseen force to sit down on the bed. Then the bed, which was a waterbed, waterbeds are creepy, don't get a waterbed, um, starts to like roll and wave and rustle and like pitch him all around. Then he feels unseen hands pulling him and stretching him and sh- and they would like strike him. And then he sees out of the corner of his eye, this blonde woman again. So he assumes that this woman has some kind of like terrible intentions for him. Obviously, he couldn't talk, couldn't scream. He tries to reach for the door. The door won't open. He doesn't know what to do. And just then, Deborah walk, is when Deborah walked in. So it's time to call Barb back. <sighs> Shit went down again. We got to call our girl Barb. So I call Barb and Barb says, Okay, it's time to bring in ghost hunters. So they call TV shows, of all things, to come in and record and have ghost hunters do like official reporting. And you can find them online. I will link some of them in the show notes. Uh, And if you want to watch for yourself, people go into the Sally house and have a really terrible time. You can, as the ghost hunters eagerly confirmed the Pickman's theories. There were ghosts. They felt uh, one of them also got scratched. Apparently that happens live on camera somewhere. I couldn't find that one, but he gets like, Scratched across the abdomen. That's probably the paid content. Ugh, damn it. Well, if anybody wants to pay and show it to me, I will take it. So, um, also, you can stay in the Sally house if you want. If you want to go stay the night and do your own ghost investigations. You sure can. Nobody wants that. I, I don't want that for sure. So the ghost hunters confirm and they say, um, listen, we can't help you. What you need to do is you need to bring in a reverend and cleanse this house. Deborah says, Okay, fine. So they call the reverend. I don't know who this reverend is. There is no name for him, but they get him. That's probably because
1: he is kept uh, anonymous.
0: He's not necessarily a Catholic priest. He's just a reverend. Um, yeah.
1: Well, but any of those exorcism guys are usually anonymous.
0: Yeah, this is not... A, I don't want to confuse this with like Annalise Michelle. This is not a legit exorcism. This is a guy coming into like... No, but it's still... It's still an exorcism. they're
1: still okay, removing it. so they have um they have people like that, and normally they remain anonymous so that okay, people in the town aren't nervous about them, you
0: know, that makes sense. I would probably be mm-hmm. kind of nervous by the local exorcist, yeah, so anyway, the rev comes in and he says he's going to perform a cleansing ceremony. He makes a circle on the floor in the kitchen and has the family enter the like a it's it's a safe circle. What do they call it? I don't know what the name of the circle is, but it's like where they're where safety will be. He draws the circle and he brings the family into it. And just as he begins, Deborah yells, I need to bring Sally in. What? She says Sally is part of their family and whatever is attacking them might hurt Sally too. So she needs to invite Sally into their circle of safety. And then once she does it, she feels a cold wave settle in to her lap.
1: Ew. Yuck.
0: Yeah, so Sally's sitting in her lap. The reverend performs a ceremony which goes pretty catastrophically. Um, there are descriptions of it further online you guys can read them there's a lot of like things flying around and they say they find one of uh, Taylor's binkies looking as though it has been like burnt fly like across the floor it's a very threatening terrible experience but then it ends and everything goes calm and the reverend leaves says thank you very much um, but it it did not work at all after that night, Tony begins to hear scratching and whispers echoing through the walls of the house. It sounds as though rodents are running up the walls at all times of the day and the night, and whispers of indecipherable little words are echoing in his ears. So Tony's just gone bad for Tony. Um, but Deborah is only concerned about Sally. Every time anything is brought up, she's like, "But what if Sally gets hurt?" Hey, we have to protect Sally. Tony's like, oh, "We need to protect me." <laughs> <laughs> Worst. Um, and then. After the whispers begin, Tony starts to have incredibly invasive thoughts. He thinks that he wants to harm his family. He wants to hurt his baby. He wants to kill his baby. He wants to kill his wife. He wants to kill his pets. He thinks this all the time. It is invasive. It is constant. And he cannot drown it out. One night, when Deborah is out of the house with Taylor, these thoughts are consuming Tony. The cat comes up next to him and takes a sip out of its water bowl impulsively tony grabs a butcher knife off the counter picks up the cat by the scruff of the neck and mm-hmm. stabs it in the stomach <laughs> meow <laughs> mommy <laughs> not good immediately after tony feels good he says he he says that it feels like that was what he was supposed to do he's like okay i've fulfilled what i'm supposed to do i should i should go kill the rest of my family now that's this is my mission in life after thinking that for a few minutes tony comes to he blinks out of his trance and sees the dead cat and realizes what he has done. He's like, oh my God, what am I capable of? Takes the cat out, buries it, cleans up all of the mess by the time Deborah and Taylor get home. And the best part of this whole story is that Deborah never notices the cat's gone. <laughs> it's fine. They had three.
1: She probably thought that, I bet you, mm-hmm. I bet you she thought that the cat ran away and she didn't want to say anything and was just like, oh, thank God we were down a cat. Like, thank <sighs> God it was becoming too much. And so she, but she's just living on with this lie that she, oh, and I, I didn't even know it was missing.
0: I hope nobody looks at me because maybe I let it out. Yeah, yeah. that sounds, sounds pretty right. But It's a pretty bad night for Tony all around. So Tony doesn't tell anybody about this event. He kind of takes a breath, collects himself and tries yet again to move on with his life. The next day, he is on the second floor of their home leaving their bedroom when he feels an unseen force push him as hard as it can against the railing at the top of his stairs. It pushes him again. He hits the railing with a crack. Three of the little I still didn't look up the name of these, the little banister beams that connect like the railing to the step. um, They crack and become dislodged from the force of him hitting it. And he manages to stumble to the ground and steady himself. Um, And Deborah heard this loud noise and comes running up the stairs. She's like, what's going on? Now, if Tony had gone through the railing, he would have gone directly down to the second floor on the ground and, and broken his neck and died. Something had clearly tried to kill him. He tells deborah what has just happened she can see the damage to the railing she can see how shaken up he is and finally she snaps into the realization that you know tony has had all along they have to leave the house
1: thank god and he told her about the cat too
0: no he did not tell her about the cat Oh, okay never noticed the cat was gone later in life he does because it's in the book and they talk about it but like at that point in time he wasn't about to be like oh right Also, I killed the cat. What if there never was a cat? (gasps) What if the cat was a person and he just thought it looked like a cat?
1: Shit. Little rat person. (laughs) Hanging around their house. (laughs) Sir, I just wanted to know
0: if you wanted the local or the new encyclopedias. (laughs) Mommy. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? No, that, sorry, Deborah. That, that didn't happen. We were just speculating. We're just having a good time. It's all it's all fun. It's Halloween. It's Halloween, yay. So they pack up all of their things and on Halloween 1994, they finally move out of the house. But just when they're leaving, like walking out the door for the final time, Tony has already gotten in the car because Tony's like, let's go. Deborah is holding Taylor and she walks out the door and something is compelling her to stay. And for a minute, she gives it serious considerations. She thinks I could just stay in the house. It could be me and Taylor and Sally, and we could live happily as a family and everything will be okay. Tony can go. But then she like logic takes over and she goes, no, I'm not, I'm not going to leave my husband to stay in this house. We have to go for good or for ill. So they leave. A month after They have been out of this house. Deborah begins to reflect on her experiences while they were there. She also kept very extensive journals. So she would pour over theirs. And she wonders now if Sally was even real in the first place or if she was just a manifestation of the evil spirit living in that house, lulling Deborah into a false sense of security so it could kill Tony and keep the family for its own. So Sally was just bait, something it created. Yeah. And that would explain why Deborah had so many thoughts of like, I love her. I need to be with her. No one has lived there since, but it is a tourist attraction. If you are in Atchison, Kansas or taking like a spooky road trip, which sounds delightful and you want to stop there you can take a tour of the sally house you can go spend the night in the sally house you can ghost hunt there you can do all kinds of stuff um you can catch uh the sally house on an episode of buzzfeed unsolved which you can find on hulu now i watched that one they firmly believe it's a demon. It's an interesting watch. They also talk in the same episode, they talk about the Island of the Dolls.
1: So I will not be watching that episode. <laughs> we're,
0: we're connected <laughs> on a spiritual level, me and that guy on bus us All. Also, uh, most of the information in tonight's story came from Deborah Pickman's book, which I will link in the show notes. So if you would like to buy a copy of that on Amazon or get it on your Kindle and read her firsthand account for yourself, You are free to do so.
1: You know, it would be a really creepy end if they made this into a movie. What? Would be if she did decide to stay in the house.
0: (gasps) Yeah, I agree. That's a good ending. And she's just living there forever with the ghost.
1: Yeah, and it could be, you know, the neighbors knew what was happening. The brother and sister knew what was happening. But so when Tony leaves they all just assumed that he left and freaked out and like mm-hmm. he just started a new life somewhere else. But really they killed him.
0: Oh, but then what has to happen in this fictional movie account of it is that the mom has to kill the baby and then herself and they all live as ghosts together.
1: Oh, then it would just be American Horror Story.
0: No, it'll be more The Others. Oh, okay. I didn't watch that. Oh, spoiler Sorry, it's I wasn't going to, so it's totally fine. It's pretty old. If you guys haven't seen that one, I'm am sorry. Uh, it is that with Nicole the Kidman? Yeah, that was really really scary that movie. Yeah. Usually, if
1: there are decent actors in a scary movie, I'd rather not. Then, because <laughs> it's uh, gonna be good.
0: Uh, so my little my favorite little epilogue on the story is that there are some people. That theorized the second ghost is is Dr. Finney and Drek. Oh, yeah. That was amazing. That's, <laughs> it's just him in a blonde wig like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> that makes it way more fun. I don't think that's true in any way, but boy, is it funny to think about. <laughs> and he just keeps botching up,
1: like trying to say hi to the family, but really... <laughs> Instead, he's just like making them think about killing each other. (laughs) He's just terrible at it. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it's like, no guy, I just just wanted to sit here and watch a movie. I was just trying to say, hey, I I didn't mean to push you down the light for a second. I
0: know. I thought I would just like pat you on the back, and then man, I don't know my own strength. So figure skater arms. Friends, though we're friends, right?
1: Friends, right? Friends forever. Nope. Oy. Uh. So we're gonna skip your other n- facts that you have
0: for me. No, and we're gonna go.
1: No, into no, the no I forgot. Stories.
0: No, oh no, we have to add those. This is fun. So because Leslie is terrified of snakes, and I want to follow the rules, I'm gonna give you guys just like a little listicle. It's five facts about snakes, um, and I will also put this for transparency's sake in the show notes so you can read all of it if and when you please. Here they are real quick because I don't want to take up all your time. One, post-mortem predation. Snakes can still bite you and inject you with their venom after they die. (laughs) So you could fatally wound a rattlesnake by like shooting it or stepping on it and it could still reflexively bite you and the venom could seep into that wound and kill you anyway because it's a reflex.
1: I would just never be that close.
0: Well, if you didn't know, rattlesnakes can bite and inject venom for a surprisingly long time after they're dead, even if they are decapitated. This is much like a jellyfish, so if you, like, step on a red jellyfish on the beach, it can still sting you because the venom is loaded on, like, little almost spring-mounted mechanisms in its tentacles that just touch you and go off. So it's the same thing. If you touch the inside of the rattlesnake's mouth, reflexively, it just bites you and the venom comes out.
1: Ew, don't make hand motions. (laughs) Bite.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Two, they can steal toxins from other animals. So even (sighs) non... I love Leslie's theory about this. Even non-poisonous snakes can bite a couple poisonous toads and then come and bite you. And like inject you with venom.
1: See, this is how evil they are because they can steal powers from other amphibians and then use them for terrible things, use uh-huh. them against them. I hate it. I hate it so much. They're what did evil.
0: What'd you say before we started? They steal their powers? Yeah, they steal their powers. <laughs> That's my favorite. And then use it against them. That's my favorite way to put it. They have avian abilities. Ha <laughs> That's right. Snakes can kind of fly. Ew, I hate <laughs> this one. <laughs> Snakes can go climb up to the top of the tr- a tree and jump from tree to tree by whipping their body into Ew, a ribbon-like no. motion. So it's that like shape of a curled ribbon that like... Stop, we don't need description. description. <laughs> so they propel themselves through the air. They can go um, quite some way. Yeah, we know, Holly. Move on. (laughs) Up to 330 (laughs) feet, actually. (laughs) Leslie hates that so much. Uh, Their venom acts like ketchup. It is not thin and it does not inject directly into you. It's thick and viscous. And so when they bite you, it sticks to your skin and seeps into the wound, staying with you longer than a thin liquid would. Uh, So I always thought of it as sap,
1: but today when I was eating some french fries with ketchup i decided not to
0: have the ketchup thanks for that (laughs) another reason it's like ketchup is because you can drink it snake venom is a sneaky you drink ketchup you
1: can you just like "Mm, you know what i'll have ketchup tonight as my (laughs) drink of choice
0: listen i can't judge it's quarantine times
1: you like a glass of water no just ketchup no just ketchup please you squirt it in your mouth
0: I mean, people don't usually, but you can. I don't. You can
1: ingest it. I have friends that drink it. It's gross.
0: Oh, gross. Well, technically you can ingest snake venom. You can swallow it and it won't hurt you. It has to be injected directly into your bloodstream. So sneaky snakes. Ew, ew. Yeah. So those are my five snake facts to creep (laughs) Leslie out super hard as we move along. And that's all I have for the day. So
1: aliens, Holly. I hate them. Here we go. On Wednesday, November 5th, 1975, seven men were working on a tree thinning contract at the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest in Arizona. It was a day like any other. No, it wasn't. None of the men could sense the events that were soon to occur. It was now 6 p.m. and the sun had set 15 minutes prior. (laughs) So the men packed up their gear and got ready to leave. Their boss, Mike Rogers, who was the oldest in the group at 28, drove them all to the site that morning, which meant he would drive them all home. The guys piled the equipment into the back of Mike's 65 International truck and then piled in the car. Smokers in the back, non-smokers in the front, the same as always. In the back sat Dwayne Smith, John Goulet, Steve Pierce, and Alan Dallas, and in the front. Mike obviously drove. Ken Peterson sat in the middle, and Travis Walton sat by the door. Ugh. And this story is about Travis Walton, who was only twenty eight at the time, to- or twenty two at the time.
0: Fucking Travis. Alan Dallas, by the way, is a fantastic name. Yes, I know. So good. <laughs> he should be a magician or something.
1: Alan Dallas. Yes. Be a good, but one. it's spelled D A L I S, so it's yeah less good. I know. That killed it. <laughs> <laughs> but he'll change it as a stage name okay all right all right, all right. rewrite it yeah
0: he, if he fixes it that's good
1: they were leaving the site by 10 by 6 10 and should be home by 7 30 after a few minutes on the road travis spots something in the distance the next part i'm going to take directly from travis walton's book the walton experience
0: travis it's
1: a, a good name my eye caught by a light coming through the trees on the right a hundred yards away I idly assumed that the glow was the sun going down in the
0: west. It wasn't the sun!
1: When it occurred to me that the sun had set half an hour ago. Curious, I thought it might be the light of some hunters camped there. Headlights or maybe a fire. Some of the guys might have caught sight of it too, because the men on the right side of the truck had fallen silent. We continued driving up the road toward the brightness. We passed in sight of it for an instant. Barely got a glimpse through the gnarled branches before we rolled past the opening in the trees. Son of a... Alan started. Ooh, Alan Dallas. What the hell was that? I asked. My eyes strained to make sense of the glimmering through the dense stand of trees blocking our vision. From my open window, I could see the yellowish brilliance washing across our path onto the road another 40 yards ahead. Intrigued, I was impatient to get past the intervening pines. No. From the driver's seat... Mike could not look up with the proper angle without leaning way over. Mm -mm. What do you guys see? He demanded curiously. I don't want to know. Dwayne answered. I don't know, but it looked like a crashed plane hanging in a tree. It was not. Finally, our growing excitement spurred Mike into wringing out what little speed the pickup could still achieve on the incline. We rolled past the intervening evergreen thicket to where we could have an unobstructed view of the source of the strange radiance. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, we were electrified by the most awesome, incredible sight we had seen in our entire lives. Mm -hmm. Stop! John cried out. Stop the truck! (gasps) As the truck skidded to a dusty halt in the rocky road, I threw open the door for a clearer view of the dazzling sight.
0: Don't get out! My God,
1: Alan yelled. It's a flying saucer! So Travis isn't the greatest writer, so I won't go on to read the rest, but that's what happened (laughs) at the beginning. Oh, Travis. And I know you're dying to know the rest, Dolly.
0: No, thank (laughs) you. (laughs) Again. Nope, I'm going to opt out.
1: Mike stops the car and all seven guys are staring out at a strange golden disc hovering silently a mere 20 feet off the ground. Travis continues to describe the saucer as having metallic features, uh, what looked like windows were lining the outside of the craft. From what they all can remember, the craft seemed to be about eight feet high and maybe 20 feet in diameter. So it was a smaller ship. That's not that big. Probably coming from the mother ship as like a little field day trip.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> That's little. That's really not that big. It was probably just meant for like one or two drivers. I don't want to think about what it was meant for. Yeah. It was empty. It was like scrap metal. It was nothing. Travis needed to get closer.
1: Mm. Travis decided he had to see what this thing was before it flew away. Mike, trying to use the loudest whisper he could, yelled, What are you doing? Yeah. Travis was now about six feet from being directly beneath the machine, which started to make noise. Fucking Travis! (sighs) Remember, up until this point, the craft was completely silent. (laughs) He said he could detect a strange blend of low to high-pitched mechanical sounds and a rumbling sound of heavy machinery. (sighs) The tones were so strange, it was like nothing he or the other crew members had ever heard before. Mike started to yell louder at Travis to get away and come back to the truck. Clearly, the yelling whisper was not working. Come back to the truck! Just come back to the truck, man. It'll be fine. Get your shit together, Travis. Travis heard Mike but needed to study the ship some more. At that moment, the craft was now sounding like the engines were starting up. The saucer began to wobble back and forth in an erratic quick fashion, and the whole crew was freaking out. Travis crouched down afraid he was going to get blown away by the engine when a bright blue-green ray shot from the bottom of the craft. (laughs) He was hit with a numbing force of a blow that felt like a high voltage electrocution. The intense bolt made a sharp crackling or popping sound. He was struck full on the head and chest. His body sunk quickly into an unfeeling blackness and he felt paralyzed. He could not see... Hear or feel anything. (sighs) Meanwhile, the crew was watching their friend get lifted off the ground by the beam, with his chest arched towards the spacecraft and his (sighs) arms and legs outstretched. Ew, just like in the movies. Travis was then hurled about 10 feet backwards, hitting the ground hard. His body lay limp and motionless, spread out on the ground. He's on the ground, though. He's on the ground. Holly, if you made it this far, what would you do if you were the one, one of the guys in the car?
0: Okay, I would run and get Travis, drag him back, put him in the car and fucking
1: get out of there. Well, you are a superstar. These guys freaked out and they
0: figured that they just watched their friend die. So they decided to hightail it out of there before the craft got them too. Guys, I said the same thing last night. So I'm, (laughs) my moral compass is sound. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All the men in the car were silent and stark white. Mike drove for a few minutes, but then stopped the car when he realized they weren't being followed. The guys discussed what they think they saw, and they all Mm -mm. agreed it was definitely a UFO of some sort. Yeah, you think? God. Mike begins looking up towards the sky and then notices an outline of a golden disc through the trees that hovered for a moment and then streaked away at an incredible speed Mm -mm. with no sound. With no sound? Yeah. Is there that high tech? They don't need sound. I hate that. Well, nobody needs the sound. What is that? That anti-gravity kind of thing that... I don't know. Nobody tell me the answer to that. You don't research alien technology. Not a one thing. Nope. The crew apprehensively decided to drive back to the scene and get Travis. But when they returned, his body was nowhere to be found. Confused and defeated, they decided to end the search and go home. Kevin said what everyone was too afraid to say. We got to call the damn cops, guys.
0: Kevin! My man. Call the damn cops. Or Barb. <laughs> call Barb. call hashtag, Barb. Hashtag call Barb. Please make us fan art yeah, featuring Barb. Please, somebody do it. <laughs> Barb the psychic. So now
1: back to Travis, because Aww. I'm sure you want to know... What's happening to him at this point? Oh, I don't. Not even a little. Travis is beginning to regain consciousness and feeling again. So, so much feeling that he realizes he is in excruciating pain. Yeah, you think? He felt badly burned and all over from the inside out. He was laying on his back but was in too much pain to try and move or even open his eyes. He was afraid he would pass out again. His mouth was dry and he was very thirsty, but his tongue also tasted like metallic. His body just felt really wrong. (sighs) There is a light pulling him in and out of consciousness. He starts to wake up and can finally see. Travis realizes he is laying on his back on a raised hard surface table. There is a light source right above him. He's looking at the ceiling and it's shaped weird. Crooked and one end is wider than the other. Travis worries there's something wrong with his eyes.
0: (gasps) This is my worst fear. You wake up on that table, there is something in his butt for sure. He tried to remember
1: what happened to him, and slowly it started to come back. Mm. He realized he must have been taken to the hospital. Of course. Ah, The alien hospital, Travis. It was hot and humid, the air was difficult to breathe, and it smelled stale. Just like every hospital wing. (laughs) I added that. Every alien. (laughs) (laughs) stale ass bitches Travis also realizes he still has his clothes on and is sweating oh good usually they're naked well this shirt and jacket had been pushed up around his shoulders exposing his chest and abdomen because every crazy thing wants to take your nipples as we have discovered in the past a strange device curved around across his body. It was about five inches thick and it felt like it extended from his armpits to just about his belt. It curved down to the middle of each side of the rib cage and it was a shiny gray metal or maybe plastic. He could see some blurry figures of the doctors leaning over him. It looked like they were wearing white masks and caps.
0: Doctors.
1: But their gowns were weird. They were like an orange colored surgical gown. One of the doctors started to lean closer to him and as Travis's eyes were beginning to focus. Oh. He caught himself staring into the doctor's huge, luminous brown eyes. Ugh. This startled him, of course. He looked around and realized there were three of them in the room, all with the same eyes and pupils larger than human eyes.
0: because they have those giant fucking almond-shaped scary eyes and those onion heads. Ugh. They had no eyelashes and
1: no eyebrows. God. They had small jaw structures, big bulging craniums, and a little round nose with oval nostrils and a tiny little mouth. Don't make them cute. Or maybe it seemed small because their eyes were so big. Uh. But they did have two arms and two legs, which made them look a little bit like humans. Gross humans. Travis was so startled. He started fighting his with his arms and knocking over two of the doctors on one side and pushing the other doctor back, realizing like, oh, maybe they're not that strong. I don't know. Like... I'm just flailing my arms. <laughs> what are you going to do? Jump into space? Travis. <sighs> he jumped off the table and the device across his chest just fell to the ground. It didn't seem to be attached to him. At least not anymore. Or maybe not yet. He was able to get a better look at the creatures. They were short, only about five feet, very thin with chalky white skin. Ugh. And this is the cute little fact. No,
0: it was not cute.
1: They had pinkish tan footwear on very small feet. Little tiny pink sneakers. Just like violets. <gasps> no, nothing like violets. Ugh. They had small, delicate hands with round fingers at the top, at the tips.
0: Like uh, like one of the little rainforest monkeys that have the little, like, sucker fingers? <laughs> yes, and also like E.T. <gasps> How dare you? Moving on.
1: Travis was weak and needed to lean on the table to stay up. <coughs> He was in pain, but he needed to muster up enough strength to get out of wherever he was. The creatures were starting to come toward him. He looked for anything that could be used as a weapon. There was a long glass-like tube on the table next to him. He grabbed it and got into a fighting stance, yelling at the creatures, Keep back, damn you! That had been in his butt. Definitely. Like I said, it was uh, probably (laughs) a little wet. (laughs) Hard to grab.
0: Ew, I ate it. Oh, Travis. It was slippery. Ew.
1: <laughs> the creature seemed to crouch back as Travis yelled and stood in a threatening stance with the tube at the ready, with his butt tube at the ready. Ew, Travis. Travis looked at them more and realized even though they had some humanoid features, they clearly weren't humans. Obviously, Travis, we got to that there. Well, they might be humans. They might be like evolved humans. Call Barb the psychic, she will tell you. (laughs) Call the damn psychic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes! Hashtag call Barb. (laughs) At this point, Travis had been throwing a ton of questions at them, but he was getting no response. Because as we all know, aliens just communicate telepathically.
0: Ew, I hate that. They just stare at you with their unmoving face and talk into your brain. Travis says just when he got the adrenaline
1: to jump toward the creatures and beat his way out, they quickly scurried out of the room, turned right, and disappeared. So that was very convenient for Travis. (laughs) They scurry. I just got the balls to go after them, and then they ran away. These aliens suck. Just kidding. Don't come get me aliens. These ones seemed, um, from the description, because they're so they're small. You know, they're like five feet. To Actually. me, they seemed maybe like the doctor ones. So they probably weren't the fighting. They were probably, <laughs> I don't know,
0: nicer. I'm sorry, doctors. <laughs> I'm sure you could kick somebody's ass if you wanted to. <laughs> well, maybe
1: they just wanted peace and
0: not war. They have butt tubes. Let's not let's not miss words. <laughs> It's
1: all for science. (laughs) So Travis waits a moment and then peeks his head out of the room. There was a curving hallway about three feet wide outside the door. He looked to the right and there was no one there. He decided to go left. He started running down the narrow corridor. He sees a room up ahead. He slowly creeps towards the entrance and notices a chair facing away from him. He enters the spherical room and approaches the chair to find it empty. Based on his descriptions of this room and the chair, it might have been a place where you could have piloted the ship, Or as we discussed last night, because it did kind of look like a a planetarium. Yeah. We (laughs) thought maybe it was just like a a game room for some of the teenage aliens.
0: (laughs) Because who's driving it if it's empty? Yeah. Teens. Um, The pilot might have just
1: gone to the bathroom. Who knows?
0: Maybe they're short because they're teens. Yeah. Causing trouble. Oh, yeah. There you go. Probing
1: butts. (laughs) Just saying. You know, poop. Poop gives you a lot of answers to things and they might have just wanted to make sure he was fine. I hate that you went there. (laughs) (laughs) They just wanted to check him out. No. (laughs) A sound is coming from behind him at this point. Of course. He spins the chair around and sees another human being in the hallway. He was a man about six feet. He wore a glass helmet that barely cleared the doorway. Travis felt relieved at the sight of him. He ran up to the man, babbling a bunch of questions his way, but he was getting no answers. Instead, the man just looked at him with a slight smirk and motioned for him to follow. Travis follows him down the hallway and out the door into an aircraft hangar that held other disk shaped crafts like the one he saw earlier. Uh. They walked through to another room where he saw three other humans sitting at a table. Travis was instructed to sit down. A woman approached and put an oxygen mask on him and Travis passes out again.
0: With the oxygen? hmm I can breathe. Ugh. Well,
1: it looked like an oxygen mask, you know, like Oh, it could have been anything. Got it. It was ether, like in my story. Yeah. Or what do they put you to sleep with? Um, anesthesia. Could have been anesthesia.
0: Which was which is what ether is, but okay. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that,
1: Holly. <laughs> I told you that, like, 40 minutes ago I told you I have poor reading comp- comprehension <laughs> skills <laughs> you're fine keep going oh god while Travis is enjoying his time in the UFO his friends on the police uh, his friends and the police are frantically searching for him <sighs> the men left the scene and returned to the small town of snowflake where they made a report to the police so snowflake is really close to the town that they were in which was heber
0: oh that's right mm-hmm. it's called snowflake which is like a Hallmark movie town. Yes. But I'm pretty <laughs> Where sure. aliens come. No. Travis <laughs> just grew up to be a carpenter and he fell in love with a busy businesswoman who got stuck there when her car broke down. And then it finally snowed in Arizona for the first time. Mm-hmm. Because the big company bought their ski resort that they thought would never work. Right. But then they
1: found out that the snow was actually coming from the alien spacecraft nope. that was blowing up in the... S- you ruined it. <laughs> You ruined Hallmark. They first talked to Deputy Ellison and then Sheriff Marlon Gillespie. He stated that the men were sincerely distressed. Mm-hmm. Avi. The policemen and the crew members went back to the scene with the flashlights and for to look for Travis again. But again, there were no results. They couldn't find him anywhere. They decided to come back the next morning to search again with the aid of daylight. The deputy and sheriff leave and head to Travis's mother's house to tell her what's been going on. She obviously was confused and concerned. She calls her son, Dwayne Walton, to tell him, and he leaves his house to go to his mom's. Very quickly, the news broke into international media. The small town in Arizona would be literally overrun by researchers, newspaper writers, ufologists, and people who were just interested.
0: Ufologists? That's a job? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They searched for days with the help of their police department, townspeople, scent dogs, men in four-wheel drive vehicles, and even helicopters, but no sign of Travis. The temperatures dropped below freezing at night, so the fear was that he may have caught hypothermia. However, after a couple of days, the police began to wonder if maybe this was a possible homicide. Alien homicide. So on November 10th, Mike Rogers and the crew were subjected to polygraph examinations. The police wanted to follow up on this theory. At this point, the police could tell something happened, but they weren't sure if it was a UFO. Some of the questions included whether any of the men hurt Travis themselves if they knew where the body was buried, and general questions about the UFO.
0: Polygraphs are bullshit, just saying. The results were
1: interesting. They all denied harming Travis. They all denied knowing where the body was and all said that they saw a UFO and even their descriptions were pretty exact. Mm. With enough variations,
0: too, to kind of,
1: you know, like they each had their own view of it.
0: Right. When people are lying, that's when they give you too many details. So... There would be some differences.
1: Um, So I will mention for the sake of the story that Alice, or sorry, I will mention for the sake of the story that Alan Dallas results came back inconclusive. So even though um, they weren't sure of his results, his answers were still like match the other guys as well. Um, And as Holly said, polygraph tests aren't really, they shouldn't really be used for like final decisions.
0: <laughs> a lot of it is blood pressure and maybe Alan Dallas isn't a magician but like a criminal mastermind or something and cops make him real nervous so it looks like he might be lying.
1: And Alan Dallas, uh, they the cops felt that he had more of an aggressive vibe when they were questioning him but I think he's had kind of a past with cops as well. Just a small one, just, you know, maybe like bar fights type of things, just small discretion. So he just might not have really liked to be around cops or trust them.
0: That's enough to make you nervous. When you're around cops, if you've been arrested. But the crew didn't
1: think that uh, Travis or Alan had any bad blood between them. Plus, they were all there, and that's just not what happened. And I doubt that all of them would have covered up, like, a murder scene for for Alan. Alan Dallas,
0: international spy. (laughs)
1: So, and the police also weren't sure what to make of all of this. Um, They did not think that Alan had anything to do with it either. Um, Sheriff Gillespie does really believe the crew saw something, but he's not quite sure that it was an extraterrestrial spacecraft. So now back to Travis. So remember, Travis is currently passed out on the spaceship. Travis writes, Consciousness returned to me on the night I awoke to find myself on the cold pavement west of Heber, Arizona. I was lying on my stomach, my head on my right forearm. Cold air brought me instantly awake. Then I saw the mirrored outline of a rounded silver disc hovering four feet above the paved surface on the road. For an instant, it floated silently above the road a dozen yards away. Then, abruptly, it shot vertically into the sky, creating a strong breeze that stirred the nearby pines and rustled the dry oak leaves that lay in the dry grass beside the road. It gave off no light, and it was almost instantly lost from sight. Ew. Travis got up feeling shaky, but makes his way down the highway to a Union 76 gas station. It's closed. But he uses a payphone and calls his brother-in-law, Grant, at 1205, and he luckily answers. Grant's very skeptical about this call. He isn't even sure it's Travis. But he decides to get him because what if it is? Yeah. Grant drove the three miles from his home in Taylor over to Snowflake to tell Travis's brother, Dwayne, about the call. Dwayne, too, thought that the call might be yet another prank call, but they decide they cannot risk it and they have to investigate. They set out for Heber, which is 33 miles away. Oh, shit. He went far. Yeah. Which um, I think that they were in Heber... Uh, At the beginning, so that must be how far even the police station is from them, which I think the police actually met them. Instead of them going to the police station in Snowflake, I think the police met them at a nearby um, shopping center Oh, to kind of break up the the travel distance and they could hear this story and maybe find their friend faster. That was good of them. When they got to the gas station and saw Travis, they were ecstatic. They got him into the car and asked what happened. Travis talks about the big eyes and the white skin and the fear came rushing over him. Grant and Dwayne Calm him down, but realized Travis thought he was only gone for a few hours when in fact it had been five days.
0: Oh, God.
1: Travis' return made national news immediately. Everyone wanted to know what happened.
0: Oh, shit. It was on the news? Yeah.
1: Well, because remember, the original, his original disappearance was all over the news. It, it made like international news, not wow. just nationally news. Yeah. Everybody was coming to this town to see if there was alien presence there. Oh, shit. Sheriff Gillespie thought Travis might have been hit on the head and maybe was even drugged and then taken to a hospital for an exam but was confused and thought that he was abducted by aliens. However, a medical checkup by various doctors will confirm that there were no traces of drugs in his body and he did not have any head trauma. And Travis will insist on taking a polygraph test. Come on, Travis. And he does this and he passes. Travis goes to see a hypnotist because at this point he only remembered, um, I think he really only remembered seeing the face of the aliens, but he didn't remember much more. So when he goes to this hypnotist, he ends up recalling about two hours more from the five days he was there. So basically what we talked about, I don't know that he really remembered, he might have remembered some snippets of when he passed out from that oxygen mask. That might be where some more of the probing happened, but something happened for five days. That's when he remembered the butt stuff. Yeah. Got it. Hypnotists always help you remember the butt stuff. Maybe Barb hypnotizes people. Call the damn (laughs)
0: psychic. Call, Call the damn psychic. On board.
1: (laughs) There are many debunkers, but Travis has maintained the same story time and time again. He has physical evidence to back up his claim. Where the UFO appeared in the forest, there has been accelerated growth of trees just in the one area. And Travis isn't sure that the aliens were evil. He actually feels like the beam of light that hit him was an accident. And they were clearing the way, Um, they were just trying to clear the way and it ended up hitting him and almost killing him. So they brought him on board to provide immediate medical attention because it was their fault and they didn't want to leave a dead human there. I don't buy it. They were just trying to help. No. And there are a lot of people that do think it's a hoax, mainly just because he decided to write a book about it. But I don't know. I mean, if you can make some money, make some money, man. Get it, Travis. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. Um it's also a a movie. He did write a second book that was called Fire in the Sky <sighs> and that was turned into a movie. But I'll put the um the link to his book in the show notes. He they do have a website where you can read a portion of the book. That's like a big movie. It is, yeah. Ew. They did take a lot of liberties. He said that if he ever got the chance to do his own movie based on his book that he would keep it like exact to the details. He was like even if it's not so like Cinematic, you know, yeah. or theatrical. He's like, I just, I'm trying to tell my story.
0: That's fair enough. Yeah. Yikes! That's. Well, I'm never gonna sleep again. <laughs> All right. I guess it's, was that. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking Travis. I guess it's time to toast. Yeah. I hmm. In my story, I think I. I don't remember who we toasted yesterday, but I. I think I want to toast our man Tony, who was like, "Get me
1: out of here." The whole time. I know. Poor Tony. We also toasted
0: Barb. Barb the psychic. <laughs> well, yeah, she's yeah. our new mascot. So yes. both of them deserve that. <laughs> to Tony and Barb. <laughs> to Tony and Barb. <laughs> we love you. Cheers. What about your atrocity?
1: I also forget. Oh, mine was uh, Sheriff Gillespie because when <laughs> I love his last name and also because he uh, definitely believed he believed the victims. And even if he didn't fully believe that they saw aliens, because he Mm -hmm. isn't sure how he feels about that, he didn't want to throw away their claims.
0: Good for him. Yeah. Cheers, Sheriff Gillespie. Gillespie. How do we pronounce that? I think it's Gillespie. It's a gif sound? Yeah, it's like G-I. So Cheers to that guy. See, oh, that's like the GIF-GIF debate. And I say GIF, so that's why I would pronounce it with a G. Oh,
1: but I guess I pronounce GIF as well.
0: No, I don't know what I do.
1: I'll let you know when I say it again.
0: (laughs) Cheers to the sheriff. He did a great job. And uh, if we were stuck facing a terrifying little girl ghost or abducted by uh, aliens in the middle of an Arizona field, we would be dead. We would be dead.
1: Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Pod, And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast
0: and more. She is one of their children now. Okay. Girl, no, she isn't.